Good morning. Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapters 11 and 12. Moses and Aaron performed all of these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole congregation of Israel that on the 10th of this month, they are to take a lamb for each family, a lamb for each household. If a household is too small for a whole lamb, it shall join its closest neighbor in obtaining one. The lamb shall be divided in proportion to the number of people who eat of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembled congregation of Israel shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the lamb that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it over the fire with its head, legs, and inner organs. You shall, not let, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. This is how you shall eat it, your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. It is the Passover of the Lord. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go select lambs for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood in the basin. None of you shall go outside the door of your house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you down. You shall observe this right as a perpetual ordinance for you and your children. When you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this observance. And when your children ask you, what do you mean by this observance? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, for he passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites went and did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh rose in the night, and he, all of his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. 
Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, rise up, go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you said, take your flocks and your herds as you said and be gone and bring a blessing on me too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. After this, when Jesus knew that it was now finished, he said in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we need you this morning. And we pray that you would meet us here. We thank you for your word and for your spirit. We thank you that King Jesus sits on the throne and reigns over heaven and earth. And we do pray as we uh, sit in this gap between the way things are and the way things ought to be. And we're so mindful of the brokenness of our world, of the horrors and the harm, the things that befall us and our neighbors, the, the evil within and without each and every one of us. God, we need your renewing wind. We need your life-giving love and mercy. We need an act of your Holy Spirit. So be with us now and remake us in your image, we pray, so that we may be bearers of your peace and love in the world. Through Christ our Lord, amen. So, admittedly, there's, just, there's a lot going on right now in our world. And as we read a text like this one, it is probably impossible for any of us to read it without our minds immediately going to what's currently happening in the Middle East and Israel and Gaza uh, and the surrounding regions. Also, as we read a text like this and we get into the kind of the, the nitty gritty of ancient texts that describe uh, some terrible things. We also probably come to a text immediately wanting answers to some of our own difficult questions. So whether you're going there because of kind of the current state of geopolitical realities in our world, or you're going because of the kinds of questions that come up in your own heart and mind as you read this ancient text, we are probably all prone to starting somewhere other than where we need to start in order to listen to God's voice in this text. Because if you recall, the Israel of the Bible isn't the modern nation state of Israel, right? The Israel of the Bible is a people. They're a large extended family descended from Abraham and our story tracks with them. And also the questions that are, um, that maybe are, are in, we're invited to ask by this ancient text are not necessarily the ones that we immediately raise in our own minds when we read ancient texts through modern lenses. And so just before we even get started, just want to take a quick gut check and reset and just put maybe some of our, our own places where we want to start and put those on the shelf and instead maybe ease in and settle in to listening well to this ancient text and considering maybe what questions is it inviting us to ask and what answers to those questions does it provide. 
And the two episodes that we're going to consider this morning as we continue to make our way through this book of Exodus are these episodes of plagues and Passover. And I want to start simply by telling the story in a way that tunes our ears a bit to maybe better hear this in context, to highlight some of the things we miss when we try to read an old text through modern glasses. And then once we do that, I want us to consider what the plagues and Passover might mean for us today, particularly as we pull these stories toward our own lives through the story of Jesus. Jesus, who has fulfilled and transformed the Exodus story for us and now calls us to follow him in what the New Testament writers call a new Exodus, a greater Exodus out of our enslavement to sin and death and into the life of freedom that God intends for his people. So first, let's look at these plagues. We just read the story of the 10th and last one, the horrific story of God's bringing death upon the firstborn sons of Egypt. But we kind of need to back up and think about the plagues as a whole if we're going to understand what's going on here. And it's inevitable in a sermon series like this one where we're taking 13 weeks to do a 40-chapter book, there are times where we just have to zoom out and look at the forest rather than closely examining each and every tree. And this is one of those times. This is also a good opportunity to plug Cindy's class. If you want the deep dive, if you want to go in and look up close and personal at some of those trees and not just the forest, it's never too late to jump in on Cindy's Wednesday class, which is offered here at noon and then in the evening in West Philly on Wednesdays. The plague narrative is so important to the Exodus story, and it's long. It's five chapters. That's why we didn't read it all but we're not going to understand the theological message of this 10th and final plague unless we catch a vision of what's going on in the story of the 10 plagues more broadly. And the story is basically like this. Pharaoh refuses Moses' plea to let the people of Israel go from Egypt. And so God fights on behalf of his people and twists Pharaoh's arm until he yields. We've already seen in weeks past that the Pharaoh is an anti-God figure in the book of Exodus, and that really the whole first half of the book, the story of God's rescuing his people from Egypt, it's a showdown. It's a showdown between Israel's God and Egypt's Pharaoh, which is to say Israel's God and the so-called son of Re, the sun god of Egypt, between Israel's God and the very gods of Egypt. Pharaoh's dominion is Egypt, but the Lord's dominion is all of creation, including Egypt, but also inc including every element of the created order. And so the story of the 10 plagues is a story of, this, of, this, of God's creation responding to the beck and call of God's invitation to join God's fight against Pharaoh, the anti-God imposter king in the story. And so we're supposed to see the 10 plagues as God's reversal of the creation story in Genesis 1. This is God bringing chaos to Egypt out of the order of his creation. God's creation serves the purpose of God's redemption in the story, and that's a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. And all of this is situated inside the story of this old school face-off between God and Pharaoh, two deities, so to speak, very unlike in dignity. 
This is the stuff of high drama, it's theatrical literature, and it's the kind of scripture God has given to his people. So get your popcorn and get your junior mints because we're about to take a quick tour <laughs> through this old-fashioned kind of like Wild West shootout between hero and villain that we get in the plague story. So the plagues begin with the Nile River turning to blood. That's the great Nile, right? Egypt's source of life and power, it becomes a source of death. And then in the next three plagues, we get frogs, gnats, and flies that come upon Egypt. These are plagues from the water, from the dust of the earth, and from the air, the three tiers of the created world, and they start to turn against Pharaoh. Then come the afflictions on the livestock, the people of Egypt who are covered in boils, and even the crops as they're pommeled with hail. The plants, the animals, and the humans, the three kinds of creatures featured in the biblical creation story, creation itself turns against all three in Egypt. And then come the locusts, this great harbinger of doom that gives a preview of what is to come. The locusts come from an east wind, just as an east wind will soon part the sea that will swallow the Egyptian army. And the locusts come as a thick black cloud, foreshadowing the plague of darkness that will follow. Then comes the darkness, the ninth plague, a direct attack on Pharaoh's supposed father, Re, the Egyptian sun god, who's shown to be powerless over the sun that obeys the command of Israel's God. And at this point, creation has completely un come undone in Egypt. The very first act, let there be light, has been reversed. Now it's just chaos, darkness upon the face of the deep. And Pharaoh out of the hardness of his heart, casts Moses out of his presence and pronounces a death sentence upon him if he should ever come back to his courts. And that's the last straw. Pharaoh banishes from his presence the servant of the Lord, the last lifeline he had. And this final plague, God's bringing death upon the firstborn sons of Egypt, functions in this story as a picture of God's justice. And that might be hard for us to wrap our minds around because it's such a horrific story. But it is what Moses warned Pharaoh of in the beginning back in chapter 4. And the death of Egypt's firstborn son is meant to be seen not as God's like freaking out and having a temper tantrum or something like that. But it's God's measured out judgment that corresponds directly to Egypt's crimes against Israel in chapter 1 where Pharaoh ordered the death of the Israelite sons. Here in the story we see, what we're supposed to see, is not that God is a savage or something like that. What we're supposed to see is that the tables have turned. In the beginning, Pharaoh was putting Israel's sons to death, and the people of Israel were wailing in anguish under the weight of their suffering. But at the end of the plague narrative, Pharaoh finally breaks, and he has to lie in the bed that he has made for himself and his people. And this final plague, like all the plagues, is intended for Israel as a polemic against the Egyptian gods. We see the Lord, the God of Israel, demonstrate his dominion over all creation, a direct affront to the pantheon of Egyptian gods who each claimed control over a particular sphere. Ray, the sun god, is made to look like a punk when God brings darkness over Egypt and brings Pharaoh, the son of Ray, to his knees. 
Osiris, the God of the dead, is shown to be impotent as Israel's God demonstrates that he, in fact, is the one who has authority over life and death. Now, it's not quite as simple and straightforward as all of that. Scholars will differ in their assessments of exactly which deity is being confronted in which act, but at least you get a sense of some of these main characters who are involved in the kind of text that we're dealing with here. The point of the story is that the Lord, Israel's God, is above all of the other gods. He's a God who does just what he says he will do. He's a God who fights for his people. He's a God who keeps his promise. And by his mighty arm, he delivers the people from the rival powers that lay claim to their lives and enslave them. So if we want to see some sort of application to our lives right here in the story of the plagues, that's the main point here. It's be impressed with the living God. Live in awe of him. Worship him alone because he's greater than any other. He owns all of creation. He has a claim and right to everything. He made all things and they are his. We are his. We belong to the Lord. And the battle belongs to the Lord as well. It's a picture of God that calls to mind that oft-quoted description of Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where Mr. Beaver says of the great lion, oh no, he isn't safe, but he's good. The God of the Exodus isn't safe, but he is good. He is just, and he calls us to trust him with our lives, to follow him, to set out on this exodus journey with him in which we leave behind the Egypts of our lives, those powers that enslave us and choke out life as God intends it for us, a journey that begins with the dethroning of the rival powers that we allow to rule over us, whatever they may be, the opinions of others, a worldly notion of success, the insatiable desires of our flesh, the fears that paralyze us, our commitment to self-reliance. Out of this old creation that is falling apart, out of our old selves that are marked for death, God is making all things new. And the plague of death is one that God has said will not ultimately be the end of the story that he's writing for humanity or for his world. And the Exodus story shows us that the way out of the old and into the new is going to be the way of Passover. And in our remaining time, I want us to think about this Passover in two ways. One, Passover as exit strategy. And two, Passover as ritual. So exit strategy. Most of us would probably prefer an easier way out of Egypt What we see in the story is that the way out is actually very costly and difficult. It is, as some commentators have described it, a bloody mess, a painful extraction from a place of brokenness and death. It's a theme that extends as far back as the earliest chapters of the Bible and runs throughout the whole story of Scripture, life coming out of death. And because of the state of things, the fallenness of humanity, the corruption of the world, the systemic brokenness that pervades life on earth at both the systemic individual and social levels. Liberation from our stuckness isn't easy. 
It isn't a quick fix, but rather a costly and painful process of breaking down and building up, of dying and rising again. God rescues and restores his people through a process that deals honestly and fully with the depth of the problem at hand. And because that cancer has afflicted God's creation and it runs so deeply, the treatment will be excruciating as well. God brings life out of death. But one of the hard edges of the Exodus story and the whole story of the Bible for that matter is that there is no way at this point to avoid the death part. But the great hope of the Exodus story is that God has made a way through death, not around it, not an avoidance of it, but through it to deliver us from it, to relocate his people to the land of the living. And that's the story of the Passover. God instructs the Israelites to cover their door with the blood of a lamb. And all those who take refuge under the blood will be spared. And to them, God will open up this path that moves forward out of death into the wilderness on a journey toward the land of the living. And it won't be an easy path. It won't even be a path that's fully mapped out for them. God doesn't give Israel a five-year plan or a 50-year plan or even a clear understanding of what tomorrow will bring, but he promises to deliver them. He calls the Israelites to trust him and to take those first steps of faith out of Egypt in the presence and power of the Lord who promises to save them. And as we read this story in light of the coming of Jesus, who takes up this Exodus story enacting and fulfilling and transforming it in his own life, death, and resurrection. What we see is Jesus taking on all that opposes God in the world. We see Jesus dethroning and defeating the powers of evil and death that ensnare God's people and God's world. And once again, we see God bringing life out of death as Jesus himself is offered up as the Passover lamb on behalf of God's people and then raised in victory as the pioneer of a new exodus. Ultimately, the great cost of our redemption is his blood. And to be in Christ is to be sheltered from the ultimate power of death and the inevitable ending of the stories we try to write for our own lives apart from God. And God calls us to take refuge under the blood of his son, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where our Exodus journeys begin, not end. They begin at the cross of Christ. Because as Chuck DeGroat points out in his book, Leaving Egypt, the Passover is an exit strategy. And the point here is to see that the sacrifice of Jesus is our point of departure on that journey. The cross is the beginning point for a new way of life in Christ, a life that begins to turn away from these Egypts that have trapped us and defined us and to begin to venture into a way of life of trusting God. DeGroote writes this. He says, nothing less than a Passover moment is needed for us to cross into freedom. The honest and vulnerable confession that we cannot overcome our darkest moments without our redeeming, liberating God. But that's scary, right? I mean, if we're honest, that's probably kind of terrifying because it requires what? Vulnerability. Freedom comes by way of our opening ourselves up to these mighty acts of God who isn't safe, but is good. 
So exiting Egypt by way, of, by way of Passover, that's a scary movement. But it's the only way out. And so the question, I think, for you and for me is like, will you dare to trust this God? Will you dare to trust this one who calls you out and calls you further up and further in? Who invites you to take a first step on a journey that says, I'm only okay in and through the blood of Christ. And the path of freedom is whatever comes next in following him. Will you dare to relinquish your right to self-vindication, self-promotion, self-rule, and instead surrender to the one who leads you on an Exodus journey? When we look to, see, when we look to Jesus to just see what it's like when we take up this kind of life, we see that embarking on this Exodus journey with God, it looks like humility and self-sacrificial love toward others. It looks like receiving forgiveness and asking for it and then extending it to others, not making them pay anymore because you trust that the blood of Christ is payment enough even for their sins against you. That's scary. And it should be. Look what happened to Jesus when he did it. But at the same time, it also shouldn't be because look what happened to Jesus when God raised him up. Look what happened through his willingness to follow God to the end. Out of his death, God brought life to the world. And out of your death, speaking figuratively or literally here, death to your selfishness, death to your preferences that put others behind yourself, death to your comfort zone that doesn't make space for difficult people, death to your desire to protect yourself by closing pieces of yourself off to God and others. Out of your death, God will bring life to you and others as well. This is what God does in Jesus and his renewing spirit. But for you and I to embark on a journey like that, for us to believe that, for us to actually do that, we have to have a Passover moment ourselves. Because our only hope of leaving Egypt comes through opening ourselves up to this God of the Exodus who extracts us and transforms us as painful and scary as that may be. So how do we do that? How do we keep moving forward in faith the journey can be so wearying and discouraging. How do we continue to press forward in repentance and faith without losing heart and giving up? Well, this is where God gives us not just an exit strategy, but a ritual. God graciously gives us a meal of remembrance in which he calls us to rehearse the story over and over again. A ritual that brings the Exodus story front and center in our lives every week to reshape our imaginations, to help us remember where we've come from and where we're going, to gather us together around the story of God's faithfulness to rescue and restore his people. Now, I wasn't at the Women's Day Away. I'm never invited to those things. But I heard great stories. And thank you to all who helped put it on, for the Sparrows, for hosting, for Cindy, for leading, all who helped to coordinate. I got the little secondhand version of some of what Cindy taught. And she talked about how we gather to remember we gather to remember who we are, who God is, our story, so that as we scatter out into the world, we do so differently, remade and renewed in God's presence with God's people. That's what happens as we gather to the table and remember this Passover story as our own.
when we keep the feast. We see the Passover instituted as this ritual that's to be repeated for generations to come, where God gives very specific instructions about food that symbolizes both the bitterness of Israel's slavery and Egypt and the faithfulness of their God to deliver them. It's a ritual that's designed to habituate God's people in remembering and rehearsing the story of God's rescue and recreation. And God says to every generation, keep the feast. Ritual's powerful, it shapes us. This is the basic principle behind advertising. Repeat and remember, create a new imagination for the future. We all have our rituals. We're all formed by habits. We all rehearse the stories that compel us. But the question for us then is, which habits, which liturgies, which rituals will be the ones that wield the most power in our lives? Will we take the ones that God has given us and centralize them, the ones that shape us toward God's goal for the world and God's goal for our lives? Or will we settle for the worldly rituals that are all around us? When Jesus took up the Passover meal and transformed it on the night that he was betrayed, he gave us a new way to keep the feast, new food, bread and wine, infused with new meaning for a new exodus. There was no lamb to eat at Jesus' Passover supper because he himself was the lamb. And the sacrifice of this lamb would be a unique, unrepeatable event once for all for the sins of the world. Brushed in hyssop, it is finished. But Jesus also gave his disciples a ritual to repeat in every generation. It's the meal we celebrate together every week. It's a meal of remembrance that symbolizes both the bitterness of our sinfulness and our mortality, Jesus drinking the cup of wrath and death in our place. But it's also symbolizing God's faithfulness to deliver all who take refuge under the blood of Christ and embark with God on an exodus journey of repentance and faith. In this meal, God gives us food for the journey the bread of heaven, the cup of our salvation, the flesh and blood of the Passover lamb who was slain. So today, as we gather to remember, as we keep the feast, will you behold him, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Let's pray. Gracious and loving God, in the fullness of time, you sent forth your son, Jesus, to unite all things in him. It is to him we look today for hope, for inspiration, for liberation. And we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us to take those next steps with him resting in his salvation and daring to take next steps into the world that you are making. We do pray that you would bring to completion your great work of making all things new. We feel the need for it so deeply and we pray that you would help us to join you in that work today. Through Christ our Lord, amen.